Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Crypto Hipsters Podcast, where I interview founders and co-founders, entrepreneurs and artists, executives and stay-at-home hipsters in crypto and blockchain around the world. And I have an amazing podcast for you today. Let's get to it. And uh, today I have, and today to kick things off, I have Adam Majbidar, who is uh, the founding team member of, and product engineer with the Third Web and an alumni with Knowledge Society. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Very welcome. Very welcome. So let's kick things off. Uh, first question is this, what is your background and is it a logical background for what you're doing now? Hmm, well, right. So, uh, I would say the first relevant piece here is I've been interested in engineering slash robotics for a while. Uh, so like all the way back to middle school, I actually got started with Lego robotics, this thing called next gen, um, which is kind of like a good intro into robotics for kids. Uh, and I competed in robotics for a while up until high school. Uh, I did. Sorry, in middle school, I did high school robotics. Then I kind of stopped after that because uh, I kind of transitioned over to coding. That was kind of my thing for a while, just kind of self-taught in Python. Um, and then I eventually, so I think what was happening was, are you familiar with AlphaGo? Right, so back in 2016, AlphaGo beat Lisa Dahl. That's kind of when uh, I was introduced to AI for the first time. And I kind of, something clicked with me and I was like, I need to learn how to do this thing, especially because I already knew Python and coding. Uh, so I kind of self-taught myself that. And then because of that, I actually ended up finding the Knowledge Society. Um, so I went there, kind of dove deeper into my uh, AI interest. Um, and so it's kind of interesting. Like I was actually fully on AI for maybe a year or two. I worked in AI originally. Um, but then I kind of transitioned over when Web3 started to take off. Um, I started to see the opportunity there. And like naturally, I'm, I'm a, I would consider myself a generalist. So I don't like to stay too specific in one area. So while I was doing AI, I was also kind of learning Web3. Um, and then kind of this opportunity came along. I was, I was working a little bit more, started to get some offers. Um, and then this one offer came along where it was just kind of a, um, a really well incentivized, really cool project to work on. So I ended up transitioning over to that. And then that kind of grew into third web. So it's kind of interesting. Like you asked, is my background, does it make sense? And I think, uh, from one angle it does, right. Cause I was in engineering tech the whole time, but then also it's interesting. Like you see, I was in AI, like full stack engineering and immediately transitioned over to Web3 with like a one to two month amount of learning. So kind of a two, like two sides of the coin on that question. The transition wasn't very, was, was, was difficult or were you used to super genius? No, not. I think, I think the areas like in coding in general, especially if you've been coding for a while, um, the learning curve to change from like one technology to another is actually not very high. I think the difficulty, like the biggest learning curve in coding is just learning how to code in the first place. Yeah. I, I learned SQL in 2015 and 16. And once I knew it, then that's what you said. Yes, I agree. Um, so you say that you're a learner and a builder at heart, right? Um, how, how so? Right. So I think this has, a, this is a good question. I think it, it has two parts to it. So one thing kind of ties into what I said before is like, um, I consider myself a generalist and that's something that's pretty important to me because I don't like to, like as much as I like to go very deep into a specific subject and I actually have a framework around 
being a generalist, which we can talk about later if it's if it's an interest. But um, basically, I like to I like to keep a breadth of kind of like subjects that I'm interested in, and not just interested and like can talk about, but like competent at a, a technical level. Um, and so I think that's that's like the, the aspect that makes me a learner. And in fact, I used to do this thing pre like uh, work where I just have this one page in Notion. If you're familiar with that like that technology, and uh, it's called my like learn page. I just have like in there a page for every single subtopic I want to learn about. There's probably like 20 to 30 right now. And like I take basically my framework, which I was re referring to earlier, is like the important thing when you're learning about something. So it's great being a generalist to know about a lot of subjects. The issue is if you try to spread yourself too thin, you'll actually never go deep into one subject. So what I like to do is like a kind of like a fake expert where for like one week or one month, you just pretend to be an expert on that one subject. Don't worry about any of the other ones. And if you repeat this process, you end up in that month, you get a lot of depth in one subject. You can kind of switch off to other subjects. Um, and so that's where I would say I'm a learner. Um, and then with Builder, um, I think, so there's a lot of value to learning. There's also kind of the thing of how much knowledge are you going to acquire before uh, you start to actually do something practical with it or put it into uh, use. So, um, as a builder, I would say, um, I think there's a lot of importance, not just to learning about something, but to put it into practical use, especially with a lot of the text that's coming along today. Like um, there's a lot of value in learning about Web3, for example, but there's also a lot of um, kind of understanding value in building the stuff yourself. Um, and you learn a lot about kind of things that, like the, the low level of how it works that you wouldn't get out of just reading about it. Um, so that's kind of where I think those two things fall into place. I like the concept of being the expert for a month. That's a really good idea. Um, yeah, I like that. So um, you're a founding team member of Third Web, right? What is Third Web all about? Right. So Third Web um, kind of spun out of a couple previous ideas. Um, but basically, the premise of Third Web is it's really difficult right now uh, to build on Web3. Like you have a lot of um, kind of bottlenecks where there's a huge opportunity in the space, especially if you look at like the future visions of kind of NFTs in the metaverse, DeFi, um, like decentralized web. Um, and then you look at where it is right now and we've kind of not reached like a lot of the potential and that's kind of natural with tech, right? Like tech progresses over time. But also if you look at what's kind of stopping that, it's like all these smart people have great ideas and they probably have the skills to execute on them except for one thing, which is the big bottleneck in this space is like, contract developers, especially in like EVM chains. Um, and so that's a big bottleneck because A, contracts are really difficult to write. They're prone to errors. There's not a lot of people doing it and they're expensive. Um, and so that kind of blocks like a huge amount of progress in the space. And so our, our kind of insight there was like, this is ridiculous because a lot of things people are building is not like, of course there's some uses where like you'll need to get your own developers. You're making something like completely novel. And uh, so you'll need to like hire people for that. For most of the cases, like if you're making an NFT drop, you're making like a marketplace to sell things, you're making like, there's all kinds of like kind of modular use cases in Web3 where people don't, shouldn't have to remake them every time because like they're, they're similar across the majority of, of times people are building. And so what we realized is like, we need to make a system for people to just implement these features themselves super easily, kind of just plug and play, um, customize whatever they need. Um, and so what that does is it, it completely removes that need for people who kind of just want to get started, um, build their own projects that maybe don't need as much technical uh, like foresight. Uh, they can kind of just come to our product, um, deploy contracts themselves in like a click of a button, um, like, and directly integrate with their contracts themselves without having to deal with all the overhead of like 
uh, engineers and other other stuff like that. So it's a in the box solution for those who need something in the box, but not a comprehensive uh, thing for for trying to build from scratch. Uh, so no, actually. So basically, that was kind of the insight of of how it started. So where it is now is like there's a couple things we do. One. Um, our contracts are like actual smart contracts on chain. When you deploy them, you own them. So there's actually no difference between you creating one yourself and deploying it uh, versus deploying it through us. Like, uh, so, so it's actually your own contract. Second of all, they're completely integratable with the rest of the ecosystem. We make sure. So like, um, there's no difference between an NFT contract deployed on OpenSea and then like uh, one deployed through our, our website as far as like what functionality OpenSea supports, we support also. Um, so we make sure that like it's completely integratable. The other thing is like, so I mentioned how this is meant to like help developers. That's, that's part of the value. Um, another thing is like, we're, this is not like a no code solution, although it can be used like that. Um, so we have SDKs and other tools um, that kind of give people who want that lower level control, like they can control everything about the contract in the exact same way they could if they encoded it themselves. So like, we're making sure this is a, kind of a boost at every level of expertise, even for like the high level engineers, low level engineers, um, but it also kind of helps at the right places. That sounds good. That's that's really um so you said, you know, so that's that's the smart contract butt feature, right? Um, you know, a few of the roles I'll see we're focusing on are, you know, the economic futures and economies surrounding, you know, finance lending, NFTs, decentralized web, stuff like that. How are you helping? You're saying with like the repeat the beginning part like with the financial roles of the, of the yeah your 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 focus has been like like caring about people's economic futures and the shifting economies dealing with these areas of decentralized finance and lending right how do you how are you focused on that how do you help so i think kind of to, to broaden it out a bit like all these there's a lot of important issues like that in web3 where it's like like that's one um kind of like financial, and that's kind of the premise of DeFi is like economic equality, like equality of opportunity and lending and stuff like that. Um, and then there's like, there's like other blockers in other spaces of crypto. And kind of what we're doing is in order to solve those problems in a specific space, for example, in the space of DeFi, um, you need people to be building in that space. And until more people can build in that space, the, the rate of progress is going to be a lot slower. So what, what we kind of are is like, we're not targeted toward one specific thing. We're like kind of a platform for the entire like Web3 space across different kind of uh, verticals uh, to grow in the sense that like we're helping people across the board in all of these areas uh, to kind of like build their own product that they wouldn't be able to otherwise. Got it. Okay. So um, some other topics that uh, it turns out that you're interested in when I was doing a little bit of research and, and I, I never heard of this before. Yeah, so I'd like you to talk about it a little bit. Um, existentialism, Vedantic, non-dualism, and nihilism slash optimistic nihilism. What are they? How do they work? How should we be looking at them? Right. So um, these are all concepts in philosophy slash philosophies themselves. Um, they're kind of somewhat overlapping. Um, and so I think the one that makes the most sense <clears throat> to kind of talk about, um, so there's kind of like the broad area of existentialism. And um, I don't want to give a bad definition here because it's kind of one of those amorphous terms that has lots of different kind of connotations to it. 
Um, but the way I like to think about it is kind of um, thinking about sort of these, these more um, low level concepts like purpose, meaning, like the nature of reality, epistemology. It's kind of like introspective topics. Um, and so as you can imagine, that's probably a very big umbrella term that captures a lot of things. Um, <clears throat> and so there's a lot of depth to it. Um, and it's a lot about self-exploration. Like it's stuff that it's difficult to kind of explain directly. But I think the starting point, which is a great explainer point, um, is <clears throat> a couple of things. So one is kind of the process of uh, existential growth, which I can talk about. And then the other is kind of, I would say maybe the starting point um, of uh, many people's existential growth journeys, although this is not necessarily always the case. Um, so that's where I'll touch on <clears throat> this concept of nihilism or optimistic nihilism, which is how I like to think about it. Um, and you've probably heard of this concept. So nihilism is basically the concept that uh, there's kind of no inherent meaning to anything uh, like in existence. There's no inherent meaning. You don't have an inherent purpose. And if you think about it, um, <clears throat> technically, like in the grand scheme of the universe, humanity is probably going to be a small blip in, in that timeline. And in that length of humanity's existence, our own existence is e even smaller blip. So it's like kind of recognizing your insignificance in the grand scheme of things. Um, <clears throat> and so where a lot of people go wrong with this is like letting that either. So, so usually people are coming into this framework from previously a framework of religion or something like that often. Um, and so this feels very alarming, right? Because you're coming from a religion where it creates a framework of meaning around you. In other words, you're told like, do this, you're gonna get this, this is your purpose, and this is what's gonna happen after death. It's a very nice kind of like put together, oh, okay, I'm still gonna like have a life after death. Um, and then when you come to this framework of nihilism, nothing means anything, there's no life after death, whatever. It's, it's a bit alarming. And so there's two kind of paths that people usually go down. One is, um, it's so alarming, you reject it, right? So it's like, I don't want to think about that. That's depressing. That's scary. Go back to your previous thought. Just ignore it. It comes up sometimes and you're like, damn, that's like, that's pretty alarming. Um, and then another way to think about it is like, and this is this is one of potentially big uh, existential growth is you recognize that the truth in what you're what you're thinking, which is like, okay, technically this is true. And then you kind of, so it's, it's alarming at first, but then you slowly incorporate it over time into how you think. And so what you'll notice is like <clears throat> this kind of process of uh, having a framework, a framework getting destroyed and then building up a new framework is actually very important uh, to growth in that area. Um, but I would say to, to retouch on nihilism in a much less cynical way, because I think the cynical way is not the correct way of looking at it. So you look at it like that, it seems a bit depressing at first. Then you realize, okay, there's a couple of things. One, why did I have this assumption that there needs to be meaning in the first place? Two, why did I have this assumption that I need to have some kind of long-term impact in the like in the grand scheme of things? And three, why do I need to have some kind of inherent objective purpose to the universe? Like these are all completely um, like self-imposed concepts, which if you think about them, there's actually no reason for them. They're, you could be perfectly happy without all of them. And so then the realization you come to is basically because it's true, assuming like, and of course, religious frameworks will contradict this. And I, I've seen no problem with that. There's actually a lot of value in other religious frameworks, but I'm just talking about this one for the sake of it. Um, so you come to the conclusion that sure, there's no inherent meaning to things, but because of that, I now have the freedom to choose what has meaning to me. And that's a very freeing concept um, because now it's like complete self-exploration. I choose what I want to do and what I like to do by genuine intention. So that's kind of like an overview of the subject. And then kind of the other ones, non-dualism, I won't go too much into, but um, they kind of just go deeper into the subject. Um, Vedanta like tends to focus on 
uh, happiness and inner peace. And then non-dualism is kind of about the nature of consciousness. Um, it's a pretty counterintuitive concept about how your reality like uh, exists, but yeah. Let me take it one step further then um, with the nihilism. Um, if you implement nihilism in technology, what's possible? Um, hmm. So you're, you're saying optimistic nihilism, like the, the more uh, optimistic one. Um, I think either one. It kind of goes beyond just technology. So I think there's there's a lot of danger in implementing pure nihilism if it's not understood properly. Um, like I think optimistic nihilism is not like a philosophy. I wouldn't consider it like a philosophy or like a framework of thinking about the world. It's kind of just like an individual truth about how the world is, in my personal opinion. Um, and so I wouldn't say that should deeply influence things if it's understood properly. That being said, I think. <clears throat> So there's a couple ways. There's two ways it can influence. One is if you have the bad view of nihilism, which is a bit cynical, um, <clears throat> that often leads to a lot of bad things. Like you can imagine if people are like, all right, well, it doesn't matter anyway, then they're just going to go give up and not do anything. Um, and it creates a lot of resentment in the world, I would say, um, to whatever extent it's a, it's a mindset that people have. Um, so that's one thing. And like, I think that that can lead to dangerous slash unethical slash unbounded technology because it's like if people um if people don't care uh for like what's going on around them it's very easy to have kind of uh, a carefree framework for for technological development which is obviously very dangerous because of the nature of, of the power of technology so that's one thing i think the other thing and this kind of spans past just technology is like when you have that framework of true um, pursuit of something not for the goal but for the process um it often leads to kind of like one, a very motivated, um, well-incentivized process for, for growth in an area, um, which is very important because like, there's, there's a big difference between someone leading something for the sake of making money themselves versus someone leading something for the sake of just finding actual like joy or value in creating or inventing or something. Um, and so I think that that definitely contributes to, um, to a much more productive uh, invention process or building process. Uh, and the other thing is, I think you get kind of, in some cases, a more nuanced um, appreciation of kind of the beauty behind your field. And I, I believe this very much. And also, like, this is kind of a, a concept from Nisha is like, in any subject, there's a lot of potential depth you could go to. And so a lot of what the appreciation of that subject comes from is like understanding of that deeper level, or like appreciation of that beauty of the subject. Um, and I think that kind of comes when you're able to detach from the, the pursuit of like, what doing something gives you and more about just the enjoyment of the process itself. Yeah, I, I've spent about 12 years of my life completely committed to personal growth and development and, you know, Landmark and Tony Robbins and all that. What we learn is you can't build on something that's messy, that's already there, that's, you know, you have to create a blank slate. And if you create a blank slate, then you can create anything, you know, so. Um, that's why I asked the follow up. Um, now, speaking about creating anything, you know, you're also into quantum and blockchain, right? How do you see using both, you know, to work together to build something from scratch, or do you see quantum as a threat to blockchain? Okay, so there's a couple parts to this. Um, so basically, quantum computing, uh, just a kind of brief overview is. So normal computing uses bits. Basically, everything is represented in kind of switches, which have either an off or an on state. Uh, and that kind of is how everything works in a computer. 
And so because these switches can only be, obviously like this is very intuitive, they can only be either off or on at one time. This may sound pretty trivial at, like, while I'm saying it. Um, they can only process one thing at a time. Now it just so happens that like, because the speed of how, much, how fast they, they process uh, kind of one computation is so fast, they can process like so many of these at once, which is what creates our current computation process. Um, and so these quantum computers, instead of their switches being only zero or one, <clears throat> and probably a lot of people have heard this already, they can be in this thing called a superposition where they're kind of both zero and one at the same time. And what that means is that these computers can be designed for a specific algorithm such that um, the computer can test every single possibility. Like let's say you have a problem, for example, the computer can test every single possibility, like every single possible answer for that problem instantaneously. And so it can solve that problem instantaneously. Now, the reason this is an issue is because today, the entire internet, including the blockchain, um, is secured by this, this security called RSA, which was invented um, a while ago. And basically what it does to get a little bit technical into it is it involves the factorization of prime numbers. Um, what that means is just you have two prime numbers, <clears throat> you multiply them, and then with that bigger number, you're the, basically those two prime numbers are used to encrypt something or code it, like kind of uh, make it hard to read. And then from that longer number, in order to decrypt it, you have to find the prime numbers that multiplied to that number. Uh, I think it's something similar to that. It might be missing like some kind of technical specificity there. Um, so the reason this is very secure as like an encryption method is because it turns out there's no good way for a typical computer to, to crack that code, like to get back from the big number to the smaller numbers without just checking through every single possibility. So if you use a massive number, um, typical computers take like thousands of years to solve it. So it's basically uncrackable. And so that's how modern email is secured. That's how the entire internet secured. That's also how blockchains are secured um, using that type of uh, encryption method. And so the issue here, which you might be able to see now is because quantum computers can check every single possibility at once, um, they can check every single possible combination of prime numbers at once. And they can crack that code instantaneously um, using something called Shor's algorithm, which is actually like theoretically proven <clears throat> to work. Um, so we know basically that if we create a quantum computer that's capable of doing that algorithm, it will basically be able to break like the entire like world of like the internet and blockchain and everything. Um, so that's kind of an alarming thought. Um, there's a couple things. One is like, we don't know if we're actually going to get there in quantum. I mean, I think naturally, if you look at technological progress in the past, we've usually been able to get to like these types of things. Um, but you could you could be bearish or bullish on that. Um, but so so that's one thing. The other thing is so yes, this will probably break every single like blockchain, not every single, but most of the major blockchains right now, um, and then also like the majority of internet protocols. Um, God knows how the world will get through that, but like there's a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel if this happens, which is just as quantum properties were used to create a quantum computer, which can like kind of break all these current codes, there's also quantum cryptography, post-quantum cryptography, which uses properties of quantum mechanics to also encode things in a way that's now supposedly uncrackable by quantum computers also. And then there's also, I believe there's a couple blockchains, I don't know them off the top of my head, which are trying to incorporate this new <clears throat> um, encryption strategy. So that might be a hedge against that if you ever like are considering it, but yeah. <laughs> so, um, so behind me, um, the yellow book, Regeneration X, I'm a Gen Xer. You are Gen Z, right? Uh, what do you see as the future implications for quantum and blockchain for Gen Z? Um, 
I think as far as Gen Z, I think this is going to be, we're kind of the generation, the first generation that's really growing up with these technologies. And so we're probably going to be one of the first ones to kind of, like I even see it around me, all my friends kind of working on these areas. Um, so I think our impact in those areas is going to be large because we're growing up with them. We're learning them at a young age. We have a lot of room to grow into the subjects. Um, and I think as far as how it's going to affect our futures, um, it's kind of a bit of a bet, like which way you think it will go. Um, but I think there's a couple of things. So one is like you take the bet whether quantum is going to exist or not. And if it does, it will probably disrupt a lot of areas. Then you also take the bet of like where's blockchain going to go? I personally think this one's much closer. I would say probably whether I like the metaverse version or not, it's probably going to end up being pretty relevant given like the track record of gaming and how VR is, is developing and stuff. So I think like an NFTs is going to play a huge part in the metaverse. Um, decentralized finance is not obvious how it's going to progress, um, nor is decentralized web. But I think these areas have a lot of potential opportunity uh, for growth in the, like the coming generation. Awesome. I wish I knew where DeFi was headed, right? <laughs> so I think we all yeah. right? Um, so I just want to ask one more question. Um, and it's one you don't really talk about too much. That's why I want to ask it is you are studying engineering at University of Pennsylvania and you have an interest in philosophy. Um, where's the marriage of that blockchain and philosophy? What does that look like? Um, okay. So <clears throat> I think there's a couple of things here. Um, um, so basically crypto itself was built on a lot of ideals that are kind of rooted in philosophy slash ethics. So, um, and they're a little bit politically charged as well, but for example, Vitalik, I believe built Ethereum because some video game, like he, he just like spent his whole life on the video game and then like they, they banned him and he lost like all of this stuff. Um, <clears throat> so there was this kind of this concept of anti-centralization, anti like, um, centralized authority, censorship, that type of thing, which I would say is, is somewhat philosophy related, <clears throat> um, somewhat political as well, like has a bit of a political stance as well as like DAOs now also. Um, but I think that's kind of where the overlap lies. Well, this has been an amazing conversation, and I want to thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's been a, it's, it's, yeah, it's been an honor. And uh, my last question is this: How can people find out more information about you, about what you do, about what the Third Web is? How how can they follow you or find out more information about you? So my Twitter is twitter.com slash, and it's M-A-J-M-U-D-A-R and then Adam, which is just my last name, my first name. Uh, and then I, my website is just adammaj.com. And you can find Third Web at thirdweb.com. Awesome. Thank you very much for your time today.